may want to grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 4. This great text that we have read. Uh, let me just remind us yet again that uh, every year at this time of year, we are confronted with this story. No matter what cycle we're in, uh, year A, B, or C of our liturgical cycle, we read the story, albeit a little different story, each told by the evangelist, but of the temptation of Jesus. And again, if you think about that, 52 years or weeks in a year, the entire scope of the Gospels to be chosen, and every year at this one time of the year, it is this text that is to be read. Again, in the wisdom of the church, there is something vital to be found here. Uh, we are on holy grounds, and we need to proverbially take off our shoes to pay attention. Every year, at this time of year, we need to pay attention. Now, obviously, um, there's great reasons to do that. Um, the Christian life is not rocket science, it's practical wisdom, right? This is the text on this Sunday of the year that shows us the one who alone has overcome the enemy. The one who has come to bind up the strong man, as Luke says, wonderful friend, in order that he may plunder his kingdom, which means that he may plunder us from that kingdom. That's the hope, and that's what we see in this story. Here is the one, and he overcomes the enemy at his devilish best as he tries to tempt him away from his own identity and vocation. And so that's the reason we come. We come to say, here is this one who has done this, and he's done it for us. But then the second reason, of course, is flows from that. This is the one who alone can teach us to do the same. And that is our hope. Not only can we rejoice in his overcoming the tempter, but we can be enabled by him, trained by him, in order to do it for ourselves. So, here we go. Let's walk through the text very quickly and then ask the question, what are we to learn from this? That uh, Many things, but one thing that will help us to do that, to overcome the tempter. Again, just note the context. Chronologically, this event immediately flows from the baptism of Jesus. Luke has the genealogy in between the two, uh, the genealogy that goes right back to Adam, which is fascinating. That's where his emphasis is. This is the new Adam coming to give birth to a new humanity. But it starts with the baptism. And you remember that story, that Jesus chose to be baptized by John. And in that choosing, the heavens were rent. The divide that separated the heavenly from the earthly was rent. The Spirit descends as a dove and lands on him, remains with him, and then the Father's voice speaks to him, Luke says. 
and says, you are my beloved son. With you and in this I am well pleased. So the father gives the identity to the son as he chooses his vocation to be the representative of fallen humanity. You are my son. With you and in this, I am well pleased. And then following the genealogy, we read this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Again, just note some of the context. This is a deliberate act of God, right? He was led by the Spirit. Mark says he was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness, but Luke says, no, he was simply led. He, but this was a leading of God's Spirit. He was led into this confrontation. And again, it's a symbolic time and place, 40 days, mimicking the 40 years of the people of Israel wandering in the desert, uh, mimicking all of the great times from Elijah to Moses who spent 40 days on the mountaintops with God. But in the wilderness, and again, going back not just to the wilderness wanderings, but to the Garden of Eden, <laughs> the Adamic failure to overcome the tempter, which caused him to be ejected from the garden and caused the cosmos to return to chaos, to become wilderness. Those are the only two images in the scripture. Either the garden that God creates and builds with us or the chaos of the wilderness. There is no other place for him to be led but into this wilderness, the place where we live. That's the context. And here he is as our representative. That's who he's been called to be and to do. Coming to undo what Adam did. Coming to do what Israel herself could not do to overcome the one who tempts us into rebellion. There's the context. Now here's the three quick and I very brief temptations. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God. He had just heard those words spoken to him by his father. And the devil says, can you trust it? Really? And this is what the devil does. He makes a suggestion that is counter to the reality that God has spoken to us. A suggestion which raises a doubt about the veracity of what we have heard. Remember again the serpent in Genesis 3. Did God really say? Did you hear it right? It's always part of the deal to raise a question 
of doubt while suggesting an alternative. It's there from the beginning. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. It's fascinating that the devil knew that he had the power to do this. Why would he suggest it if he hadn't the power to do it? He knew that Jesus himself possessed the power to take a created inanimate thing, the thing that he himself had made, a stone, and turn it, transform it into something else. Take this stone and make it bread. Do something that you can do and do it for yourself. You're hungry. It's a good thing that I suggest to you. And if you could do it for yourself, guess what? You can do it for others. Even a better thing. Go, feed the hungry. Do what God did for his people. Give him manna. But you choose to do this for yourself. You choose to do this for others. It is a good thing. But it's a twisted good thing. The devil is saying, you, Jesus... You, son, you take the initiative. You take a good thing and make it your thing. And so often we see this throughout history and in our own lives that the good becomes the enemy of the best. And Jesus responds to this suggestion, which is a good suggestion, a twistedly good suggestion by quoting of scriptures from that first 40 years in the desert, by saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This was the text that was in the daily office reading this morning, if you did your daily office. And it's a wonder story. You go back and read that. God was talking now through Moses to the people on the edge of the promised land and says, you remember what happened these 40 years. He says, God led you in this wilderness. He allowed you to become hungry, to humble you in order that he might give you manna to eat. And in giving that manna to eat to provide for you in your hunger, in your need, the way God desires to give it, so that you will know that man does not live by bread alone. That's the context of this temptation. And then the finishing up, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is the one who provides for his people. He is the one who directs their vocation. And Jesus says, I will wait for the Father and act with him. There is the first. Then comes the second. Luke goes on, he says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, uh, some kind of a mystical gathering. And we go, here is the real thing. This is really what it is about, the destiny of the cosmos. Who owns this? Who runs this? Where is it going? You see, all the temptations that come to us personally have this bigger picture in mind. It's all about influencing the destiny of the cosmos. 
and your little role to play in that destiny. Right? The devil took him up, showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. And there is the lie, or at least the half-truth. These kingdoms are not his by rights. They're his by default. They're his by our defaulting on our vocation. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. It is half true that he now runs this world, that he owns, in a sense, these kingdoms, but he does not control their destiny. There's another who has that control. But there is the half truth. And then he goes on with the conditional statement, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. That's it. You just need to bend the knee, and your destiny is given to you. I can give it to you as easily as your father can. And I can give it to you without cost, blood, sweat, or tears. All you have to do is bend the knee to me, and it is See, the devil knows that as a contingent human being, Jesus, like every single one of us, must worship something. We are made to worship something. All he does is offer himself as that object of worship. And to say, the price is right. You worship God, you pay a big price. You worship me, and you can have it all. Worship lies at the heart of our identity, our vocation, and our destiny. Those are where the temptations come. And Jesus, knowing the truth, refutes it easily. He says, no, it is written you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I choose to worship the true God, and I choose to serve him, come what may. Because that's what worship means, and that's what worship does. Again, our identity, vocation, and destiny caught up into what we truly worship. And we are tempted along those things. Devil's not through yet. He takes him to Jerusalem, Jesus himself, and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and then says to him, again, if you are the Son of God, there's that doubt again, throw yourself down from here. Seemingly an odd suggestion, but one grounded in Scripture. And he quotes the Scripture that we read today, this Psalm 91. He says, for it is written... He, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you. He says, he's told you, he's promised this. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. He says, look, just do something spectacular. 
Do something that presumes upon your father's goodwill towards you and do something that will compel you, the faithful to believe in you. What's wrong with that? Why not do something that will compel the faithful to do what you need them to do while forcing God's hand to support you in the doing? And Jesus again answers them by quoting yet another scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He knows innately that Again, to worship the Father is to wait for the Father, to serve the Father in the way he desires to be served, to not take the initiative ourselves, but to wait and then cooperate with what the Father is doing. His ways lead to his end, or they do not lead at all. That's the rightful relationship of the Son, faithful and obedient to the Father. And then when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Every temptation. Folks, again, it's not rocket science. The devil tempts us according to certain vital aspects of our life. Our identity, who we really are. Our vocation, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What is the vocation of humankind in this world that God has created, right? Our destiny, where are we going and how do we get there, right? And the source of life. What truly makes us come alive and what makes us lead to life. And there are many things that make us come alive, but they do not necessarily lead to life. I think we know that, but those are where you will be tempted. Those are the only places you can be tempted. Every temptation involves those things. And we just need to be aware of that as we seek to overcome them. That's the story. And I mean, there is so much here. Um, I just want to reflect on one thing as we bring this to an end. Why was Jesus able to resist? Why? The obvious answer um, seems to be because he knew and used Scripture well, right? That's what we see in his responses. Three different times he goes back to the Scriptures. Three different times he goes back to that, the first 40 years in the desert. But I think there is something more than just knowing the Scriptures at work in this story. I'm going to suggest to us that Jesus did not simply know the scriptures, but he trusted and delighted in them and in the one who spoke to him through them. 
I think that's the key. Came across an article uh, about Augustine this week, and I, again, it just it focused my attention. Uh, Augustine is the first that we know of in the Western tradition that sort of uh, diagnosed the, um, the stages of temptation. Brilliant man. And here is what he found. There are three stages to temptation. The first is the suggestion, right? It always begins with an idea, a suggestion that comes to us as an alternative to what we see written in the Scriptures. A suggestion which always raises an issue of doubt, a question, just like we've seen, if you are the Son of God, right? And some kind of alternative to the life that we're called to live, to the identity that we are given by God, to the vocation that we are to receive, to our destiny, all of those things, it begins with the suggestion of something other than, lesser than, and easier than what we see in the scriptures, right? There's the first stage, the suggestion that comes. But there's the second stage, and that is, Augustine says, once he suggests something to us, he awakens our delight in the suggestion. There is always something good in the suggestion. Something good which triggers something in us, and the goodness of it being inexpensive. Obvious. Right? I think you know that. Think again about the very first temptation of Eve in the garden. Uh, we read this in Genesis it says, When she saw that the tree was good for food, because that's what he suggested that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. All those things awakened within her because of the suggestion given. Right? She began to delight in the suggestion. And that obviously led to the third stage, which is the consent. She took of the fruit ate it, and gave it to her husband. I think that's a brilliant way of understanding how temptation works. There's always the suggestion that comes, and the suggestion which awakens a desire, a longing for what is suggested, and that longing leads us to choose it. And if you choose it once, it's easier to choose it twice. Even though it does not lead to fullness of life, it leads to something in life. There's always some payoff in this, always, or else we would not be tempted back to it over and over and over again. I think it's a brilliant way of looking at temptation. But here's the rub. You cannot interrupt temptation at the level of suggestion. You cannot prevent the devil by introducing alternative ideas. You are surrounded by a culture that offers alternative ideas. The suggestion will come, the tempting will come, the doubts will be raised. You can't interrupt temptation at the level of suggestion. You have to interrupt it at the level of the desire, the level of delight. Right? It is there and there alone that you have 
an opportunity to renounce the false and choose the true or not. I think the reason that Jesus was able to overcome the tempter was because he had spent 40 days alone with the Father in the wilderness. I think it was that he was stripped of all the things in his life that were good, and there are good things to be stripped of, but also of all the distractions in life which keep us from enjoying the presence of the Father, communing with the Father, delighting in the Father. He fasted from these things in order to feast on his Father and with him in the wilderness. And so when the devil came with an alternate suggestion, awakening a lesser delight, he could flick him off. When you found the real thing, the alternative is not very attractive. And folks, that's what Lent is all about. That is what we are encouraged to do at this time of year because it's almost impossible for us unless we're in a monastery to do this all the time. But to choose a time, to embrace a time, to, in essence, go into the wilderness, to strip ourselves of some of the good things in life, but mainly to strip ourselves of the distracting things in life the things that simply fill up our days and our time. And we do that in order to carve out space and time to feast with God and to feast on the words of God as he speaks to us through the scriptures. That's what we're invited to do to simply carve out the time to simply be in God's presence, to commune with him in a deeper way that we might come to delight in him in a deeper way. So that when the tempter comes, suggesting another alternative, awakening a different delight. We may find the power and the will to say, no, no. I have found the real thing. I do not need the fake thing. That, I think, is what Lent's all about. You are invited to choose to spend this time fasting from some things in your life in order that you may feast on and with your Father in heaven. And as you do that, and to the degree that you do that, you will 
increase and deepen your delight in him. Your trust in him. So that when the tempter comes, not if, you will choose to say no to that alternate awakening. I urge you to keep a holy Lent. Use this time, choose to use this time to fast from the things in your life that will allow you to create the space, the time to feast on and with your Father. Our identity, our vocation, our destiny depends on it. Because this is where we find life that leads to life and nowhere else. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.